The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Good morning, church. Good morning. Let's pray one more time. Father, we love your name. We love the very character of our God Almighty in heaven. And I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that we would be stirred, that we would be brought close, that we would be looking to you and the wonder that you have done for us, that we would have desire for you that is renewed this morning, that we would have desire for you that maybe is flamed for the first time, that God, you would fan the flame of our love into a wonderful firestorm of your gospel. God, please bless your church this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. And as you're opening up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, um, I just wanted to make sure, Caleb, are we on back there for the, the Zoom group? We're on back there, so I don't have to look at this. Can everybody this morning, um, can we just give a great big howdy to those that are joining us who are making a difficult decision to um, not be here physically this morning, but want to continue on with us in truth and in love? So on three, can we give them a really big howdy, right? All right. One, two, three. Howdy! We love you guys, and we really miss you, and we're thankful for you. We respect what you guys are doing. So, howdy. As we get going this morning, um, I want to tell, I want to say where we're going, like this, the heart of today. I spent a lot of time looking over this passage going, what's the heart of this group of verses, this pericope of verses in our Bible, this breakdown of verses? And if you would look with me, I'm going to just This is where we're headed, verse 15 and verse 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's where we're headed, right? That is like the heart of the passage in the preaching today. And this summer, I got to experience a body that was not working well together in love, right? My left foot and calf were cramping up so bad that my hip was going out, and it put me into bed for a week. I got to look at this and go, man, how much better is it when a body works together, the foot working together properly so that the hip doesn't get pulled out of joint? As a church body, we are going to be looking at how we can help one another in love, grow in our faith so that we're working well together. Does that sound good? All right. As we start, we're going to start by looking at this victory prayed 
of Jesus, this victory parade of his ascension. And it's going to be like this long, this, this train that we could like stop and we could talk about a lot of different things if we wanted to, but I don't want to get derailed from this victory parade um, into other areas. This passage is thick. And if you want to go and you want to study the ascension, you can take a lot of time and just study the ascension. If you want to just look at spiritual gifts, you could just stop and look at spiritual gifts for a really long time. If you want to look at maturity or you want to look at um, how the world attacks the church, like there's ways that we could just spend an entire day just teaching on one piece of this. But we're going to keep moving forward on this, on this victory parade. So as we get started and we're thinking about, we're moving and talking about the ascension of Christ here, we've got to go, there's, there's a short amount of time and I'm going to keep moving and I get really excited when I'm talking to people and standing in front of people. So I hope I don't go too fast. My goal is to slow down and be really specific. So to start off, verse seven, this train of parade, we start with the word, but, and we have to stop. <laughs> We have to stop there. We got this goal in this place we're going, and we get to a word that says, but. This word is a transition word. So we're taking everything. Thank you, Seth, for reading the first part of this, uh, this chapter. We're taking everything from last week. The one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, the one body, the one spirit. You were called into one hope one God and Father of all. We're starting with this, and we have this before us from last week, and then we get to this week, but. Now, that's a transition. That's saying what's coming next is different than what was before. So there's this transition taking place in Paul's thought here as he's writing to the Ephesians. There is the one faith that we have all been saved into, the one grace that we have all received in our salvation, but, verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, if we understood what he's saying here as this is salvation grace in verse 7, then we would have an issue with our doctrine because we'd be going, well, wait a minute. Maybe one person's measured a little bit more of spiritual grace than the next person of their saving grace. Maybe... Maybe if I'm measured a little more, or maybe that person's measured a little more, or that person, wow, that person got so little of saving grace, I don't even know if they're going to make it. We start running into problems, right? Does that, that doesn't sound like biblical salvation. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have been given grace for salvation. So what is this then speaking of? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So here is this parade. God sent his son, 
who died on, who descended to earth, died on a cross for our sins, was buried, and that one who descended for us is the one who ascended. Now, he has gained victory. He's gained victory, and he's ascended into heaven. That's what this is talking about, when the one who descended is the one who ascended. We're obvious, right? That's talking about Jesus. He gave gifts to men. As we start looking at this, we have to go, okay, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, but grace was given to each one of us according to Christ's measured gift, the measure of Christ's gift. So what I'm proposing in this, what I'm saying in this is that there is one saving grace. Then within the church, there are measures given out and serving grace. So there's one, we're all saved under one saving grace. In the church, we have different giftings and different measures that are given out to us. Is there evidence for this? Well, the first place that my mind goes is I go, well, we're told in scripture not many should want to become teachers because they're going to have a greater judgment of it. They're going to have a greater responsibility of it. They're going to be held more accountable. And I sit here and I go, oh man, that sounds really hard. (laughs) But I desire to be here. And I go, okay, God, if you have me desire to be here, this must be a grace that you're giving me because you're saying not many should want to teach. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, we see another evidence of this principle. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 20. We get a parable or in a story written by Je- or spoken by Jesus. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early into the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. For the sake of time, do we know this parable, right? The workers go out, they start working. And then he goes back out to the streets and he finds more people. And he says, hey, I'll give you, I'll pay you too. Go to my vineyard, start working. And then he goes back in the middle of the day and he finds more workers. I'm going to pay you, go, go work in my vineyard. And he gets to the end of the day, like the last hour, and he finds more people still who need work. He says, go work for me. Go to my vineyard and work. And then he takes that guy that's only been there for an hour and he says, come here, I'm going to pay you. It's the end of the day. Here's a denarius. Here's a day's wage for what you did. And he goes to the next guy who's only been there for three hours. He says, here's a denarius. Here's a day's wage for the three hours of work you did. Then he gets to that guy at the first that's been there all day. He goes, thank you. Here's your denarius for the day's wage that you gave. Now, in my mind, and I think just like everybody else's mind, when that first person gets a denarius, you would think, hey, I'm going to get a raise. This is great. He got a full day's wage for an hour. I must get like a 10 day's wage for being here all day. But then it gets to him and he just gets his day's wage. Jesus's parable here is speaking about our salvation. For the person that is saved from four years old and has just a burning desire to serve the Lord and serves the Lord for all of his life, guess what? He gets God in heaven. He gets to go to heaven right? 
That's the denarius there. For the, per, like the thief on the cross who's dying alongside Jesus, and he says, remember me when, I come, when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's like the one who only worked but a little time while he was dying. He got a day's wage. He got the full grace of salvation at the same time. Does that make sense? Can I get some heads nodding if that makes sense? Cool. Okay, now flip. So that's the saving grace. Flip a few pages to the right. Matthew chapter 25. We're going to get to another parable. Matthew 25. We're going to look at verse 14, the parable of the talents. For it will be, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is what he's talking about. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who received the five talents traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents, he made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. So again, the rest of this parable, the master comes back and says, hey, what did you do with my five talents? And he goes, I, gave, I made five talents more. Here's 10 talents for you. Sweet. Thank you, you good and wise and faithful servant. Hey, what about you with the two talents? I made two talents more. Here's your four talents. Good. You faithful and wise servant. Wonderful. What about you with the one talent? <laughs> Let me tell you what one talent is. A talent was considered 20 years wages. So the average American household income or wage is $68,000 a year. This is just for fun. If you take 20 years of $68,000 a year, that one servant who went, I don't want to lose this, was hiding $1.3 million. <laughs> I wouldn't want to lose it either. Like, that's, that's a lot of money. The two talents, $2.6 million. Five talents, $6.8 million. What Jesus is saying is there is an immense amount of worth that is being given to each person. It may only look like one talent. It may look like two talents. But within his kingdom, there are different measures being given out according to their ability. So as I start to look back then with these two parables in mind about the kingdom of God, I go, okay, I can understand Ephesians 4 verse 7 a little bit better now. I can look and I can read it and I can see where it's saying, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. I went to Rome about 13 years ago on my way to Africa. I spent four days in Rome and we were walking around Rome and there was this big, next near the Colosseum, there was this big arch building. And I went, what is this? And we looked on our maps and it was the arch or the, ooh, I forgot the, specific term. It was an arch of Titus. It was the arch that was constructed after the Roman general destroyed Jerusalem. Titus, Vespasian. They put this big arch up. And I went, wow, that's kind of interesting. What did they do with it? Well, 
when they took their captives and they brought them back to Rome, they had a parade. The Roman general Titus comes riding down the road with Jewish captives and he would ride through this victory arch. These arches are really, are not really common, but they're around in Europe. You can find them. And it's where you would, uh, a conquering king would ride or a general would ride his victory parade through this arch. And he would say, look at what I've conquered. And they would take their big, tough guys that they conquered and they would make them walk in shame in this victory parade. This is what like Samson was having to do when they said, Samson, come here and entertain us. And they bring him into the temple and they're showing off this massive Israelite, right? And they're all laughing and rejoicing in their victory over Samson. That's the same idea. It's a victory parade. It's a victory celebration. Here, Paul is telling us that Psalm 68 is speaking of Jesus's victory parade. He ascended on high and led a host of captives. I like personally the way that the King James translates this, and it says he led captivity captive. So when Jesus, the things that changed at Jesus' death and resurrection are like mind-boggling. Like the crushing of the head of the serpent that he did on the cross, the crushing of death, the death of death and the death of Christ, right? That's an old book that's really long. And if you can read it, God bless you. Um, It's wonderful. I've tried to listen to it. But the things that happened at the death of Christ, he took death and he killed it. He took Satan and he dethroned him. He took demons and he said, you have no power. He took captivity, these things that hold us captive, and he led them in a victory parade in his ascension. He took captivity captive, and then he gave gifts to men. It's a new year. Christmas is past. Easter's coming. Do you know it's 91 days till Easter? Christmas is good, church, but Easter's better. (laughs) Easter's coming. And after Easter is the ascension. And after the ascension is Pentecost. Jesus, in his victory parade, he went up to heaven. He assumed the throne. And there he gave out the victory gifts of the spoil of his victory. And he gave us his Holy Spirit. He gave us gifts within the church. He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. As we're looking today at these next verses, these are really specific gifts. There's five gifts listed here, right? There's the apostles, there's the prophets, there's the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. These are five specific gifts. If you look throughout the epistles, you'll find a whole lot of other spiritual gifts. The gift of hospitality, the gift of tongues, the gift of the interpretation of tongues. You'll find all sorts of gifts. These five are specifically word gifts, gifts that have to do with the scripture, with the word of God. And they're particularly special. We're going to get into them. But that's what these five are. And he's saying God in his ascension, Christ in his ascension, gave the church some particularly special gifts. 
to mankind. So let's look. Let's move here to verse 11. He gave the apostles. He gave the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. we start to look at this, we go, okay, Jesus, you already, you, you came to earth, you descended, you gained victory, you defeated sin, you crushed the head of the serpent. Why didn't you just stay? Why didn't, like, has anybody ever wondered that? Like, why didn't Jesus just stay and like rule and reign? The apostles wondered that on the night that he was betrayed. They're like, are you going to set up the kingdom like now? And he goes, oh, man, it's so much bigger than that. So then he dies, right? And the apostles are like, what? <laughs> like, he died. I know he's saying he, he died. Yeah, he was saying he was going to die, but why did he die? I don't know why he died. And then three days later, they're like, wow, he rose from the grave. What? Okay, so he rose from the grave. And then he's with them for 40 days, and they're like, what is he doing? Like, he just appeared in the room. Wasn't the door locked? Yeah, what is this? And then he ascended, and they're like, what is going on? And... Where did he go? Why didn't he stay? And then Pentecost comes, right? And then they're like Francesco Bernoulli getting passed by a rocket-propelled tow truck. What is happening? Like, come on. What are you doing, Lord? And he goes, it's so much bigger. It's so much bigger than we could possibly ever think. Like, he's got this plan that is beautiful, and he's giving it to us. He's giving it to his church. He's giving it to all humans here within his church to bless and to equip and to work with him throughout the church age, throughout this time that we have. This is what he's done. The apostles, these are sent ones. Now, when we first speak of apostles, we go, okay, there was the 12, right? Jesus named 12 apostles. The, there's, they're mentioned in, every, in all four gospels, um, Matthew, right? He was an apostle. Peter, he was an apostle. John and the brother, all these guys, these were apostles, the 12, right? And then they get to the end of the list and they always put, and there was Judas who betrayed him. He was an apostle for a little while, but then he betrayed him. He fell out of the apostleship and Peter goes, hey, <laughs> I've been reading my Bible and it looks like here, one's going to have to replace him. So Peter puts down some human like requirements for what it means to be an apostle. He says, it's been one who, starting with the baptism of John, has continued with us and has seen the risen Lord. And so they draw straws and Mathis, right? He becomes an apostle. And that's the last time we hear about him. So here's this other apostle that gets named. And then Paul says about himself, he goes, I was one untimely born to be an apostle. And it just blows that human requirements of apostleship out. Because here's Paul. He didn't stick with them through the whole ministry of Christ. He wasn't there at the baptism of John, but all of a sudden Paul is added to the apostleship. We think initially of those apostles. Here are the 12 apostles of the Lord. And I think these are the 12 apostles when we, are, when we read in Re, uh, Revelation 21, it talks about the 12 gates of the new Jerusalem. And it says on those 12 gates are the names of the twi- 12 tribes of Israel. And then there's 12 foundations. 
and written on those 12 foundations are the names of the 12 apostles. So there is a particular calling here of these 12. There's a special calling of the 12 apostles, but they're not the only ones in the Bible called an apostle. There's also Barnabas. There was also Timothy. And I've lost my spot, so I'm trying to find all of them. Um, Barnabas, Timothy, and Silas, these three are listed as apostles, but they're not of those original 12. These men were eminent Christian leaders. They had oversight of the church. They were sent out as ambassadors of Christ. So we go, okay, what do we do with these apostles? The apostle word, the word for that means sent one. One that is being sent out to do the Lord's work. A missionary growing up in a church or being a part of a church and a church saying, hey, we're going to lay hands on you. You have this calling to go to another country, to another people, to another culture. That could be just across the street, by the way. You could, we're sending you out from this body as a sent one for the work of the gospel. That is the idea of apostle. Now we think of Jesus too, the great apostle. He was the one that was sent from heaven to earth. That's apostleship. Apostleship is being sent out. So a church planter, a missionary. Which is it? I think it's both of these. I think it is the sending of Christ's church. Now, I think that there are really particulars and you can say like, yes, this person, this missionary, this ministry, apostle. But then we get the Great Commission and we are told, go, therefore, and baptize and teach, right? The Great Commission is telling us, go. Jesus is giving each one of us that apostleship in a sense. Go, and as you go, teach and share and evangelize and tell people about the love of Jesus and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Lord is with you as you're going. There's a sending out that's being sent there, that's being spoken of there, and we're all a little bit apart. We're all a part of that, not just a little bit. We're all a part of that, but then there are specifically those that are being sent. That, and that's where I think this is lining up. We're not saying the big 12, right? The top, or the 12 apostles that are, their names are written down. We're not talking necessarily about each and every single one of us, though that is true. This is a particular gifting of people that are being called out to go, to go, go, go do the work that God has sovereignly placed in your life to go do. That's the type of apostle I think is being spoken of here. The second one, prophets. Now, there's different ideas of a biblical prophet. The basic idea of a biblical prophet is one inspired by God to deliver a message. Um, In the Old Testament, we read about prophets who just laid down for a month And that was their prophecy. And then at the end of the month, they rolled over and they laid there. And they were communicating a message from God in that. There were prophets in the Old Testament that would say, thus says the Lord. And they're delivering this powerful message from God. 
Jesus was often called a prophet. He was coming in and saying, this is the word of God. This is what the scripture means. This is the proclamation of God's word. But then we also get people like Agabus in the New Testament, who comes to Paul as Paul's going to Jerusalem for getting beat up. He's going to go to Jerusalem and get beat up, and he knows that. And Agabus takes Paul's belt, and it says Agabus was a prophet, and he binds himself up with Paul's belt, and he says, this is what's going to happen to the man who owns this belt. Well, that sounds like a word from the Lord to me, but Paul didn't heed it. So this seems to be a different, a little bit different of a prophet. And that's where we get these, the separation, if you would, of prophecy. So there's the Old Testament biblical prophets that we see that spoke scripture that we have recorded. Elijah, Elijah, they were saying, thus says the Lord. And then we get these New Testament prophets that God has particularly blessed his church with that are being given an unction. Has, have you guys ever heard, that's, an, that's a King James term for like spirit leading, like an unction from the Lord to say something. Like, oh man, I'm, I just, I, I kind of need to say something. Like it's just, it's pressing on my, my heart. Like my gut's kind of tightened. I'm like, oh man, I know exactly what I need to say right now. And my heart's beating really fast and my voice is starting, it's going to quiver and shake and I'll probably crack. Like, whew, here we go. And then that person shares, this is what I... This is what's on my heart to say, like that unction. So that is more so the New Testament prophet. The daughters of Philip the Evangelist are called prophets in Acts 21. The New Testament spiritual gifting of prophecy is promised by God in the book of Joel And it is a beautiful, valued, highly sought out gift for men and women within the church. But it must be tested within the church. There is a testing of the word of a prophet that we go, okay, is this true? Does it hold up to scripture? Does it hold up to truth? If someone's coming to you and says, I, I, and I, I hope we do, and I hope we grow in this, I have this word from the Lord for you. Like I was praying for you, and this just, this verse popped into my mind. And then you go and you share that with them. That's the gift of prophecy. That's like, I've, that's how that plays out, really. That's one way that it can play out. Um, the gift of prophecy should, I think, be in the preaching of God's word, where in preparation, you just go, the, the person preaching goes, man, this is what's on my heart to say, and you say it, and somebody goes, oh my Lord, that's what I was waiting to hear. I didn't know that was what I was waiting to hear, but that was perfect. The funny ones that I, see, that I hear about are when a pastor will say he was preaching, and someone comes up after him and says, it was so great when you said this. And the pastor goes, I never said that. No, no, you said it right here when it was coming across here. And the Lord, through the preaching of God's word, just gives this powerful message that they hear and they go, whoa, like that was prophetic. I don't know how that fully worked, but it worked out. And the person's built up and it's true. 
and the church is edified through this gifting of prophecy. The gifting of prophecy is specifically, in Joel 2.28, given to both sons and daughters in the kingdom. It says, it is promised that the spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Both your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Though the authority of this spiritual gifting is different than the Old Testament prophets, it is highly, highly valued. And in Revelation 19, we get a really specific declaration of what this is. If you would turn to Revelation 19 really quickly. Revelation 19, verses 9 and 10. John, the revelator here, is getting taken around by this angel who's like, hey, come look at this. Hey, come look at this. And he's in the spirit and he's getting taken and he's getting shown these things. And the angel says to John, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet and I worshiped him. That's the angel. And the angel said to me, you must not do that. I am your fellow servant with you and your brothers and those who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what is a New Testament prophet? What can it, what can it boil down to? The New Testament prophet can literally be like, Jesus loves you. God loves you so much, he sent you Jesus. Like that could be the simplicity of a New Testament prophet. If you're walking around and you go, man, I just got this. Oh, Gideon, I just, I want you to know the Lord loves you. Like he just loves you. Like that is the spirit of the prophecy. It's like just the basis of what Jesus has done. Now you can take the whole scripture and you can go, man, I'm, I'm eating this up and God's given me this word for someone. And I just want to share it. If that's how you think, if that's how the Lord works in your heart, in your mind, like you just constantly, when you're reading the scripture and you go, man, I, I wish I could, I wish I could just tell this, you know, this gal that I'm friends with this, maybe take that into consideration and go, God, then give me the opportunity. Cause I have this heart that I want to share this with this person and then look for that opportunity to share it or write them a letter or say, man, my heart, I was praying for you and my heart is just full to give you this message today. Do with it what you will. I don't, it's the spirit of prophecy taking place. Use it, seek it, look for it. Is it yours? Is that something that's inside, like already happening inside you? Is it something you're already doing? Please do it more. <laughs> Please seek it out more. Please Look for it more. The next one, evangelists. Evangelists are specifically people who are gifted and used by the Lord to bring people to a saving faith in Jesus. Um, Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, right? There's work, like we all we all can share the gospel. We all can t 
talk to our neighbor, our unsaved family member. We can all, as we're walking down the street, bump into somebody, start a conversation, and share the gospel with them. We all can evangelize and should evangelize. An evangelist is someone who is particular, like God just goes, I'm going to use this person to like bring that fruit to fruition. And I've got a friend in Medford. This guy's that kind of evangelist. He works as a medic. He is a father, husband. He's active in his church. And he's just that kind of guy that's like, how are you always in the right place at the right time with the right person? He's like, I don't know, Jason, but this is what happened the other day. I was walking down the street and this guy stopped me and asked me some question and I shared Christ with him and he became a believer and now he's going to church with my brother. It's like, (laughs) please move up here. Like, come on, (laughs) come be like, come hang out with me. I want to see this. Um, that's the idea of an evangelist. That's like the, the gifting of an evangelist. And I think we all would go like Billy Graham, like that man was an evangelist. That is like large scale. Doesn't have to be Billy Graham crusade all around the world, large scale. It can be your neighbor. It can be your kids, moms. It can be your unsaved family member. If you're someone that God just continually seems to use to bring people, like to have that, that one climatic conversation where the person like gets it, bink, and they go, I, under- I get it. I, re- I want to receive Christ. Let it be known. Like let someone else know like, man, I, I think I have this gifting because when I talk to people, they, they believe. That's wonderful. Like, how many of us bang our heads on the table every day because we're like sharing the gospel and nobody's believing? Like, what's going on? There are those, the evangelists, who have that specific, wonderful calling. Philip, in the book of Acts, a whole chapter is given just following one evangelist. And he goes to Samaria and he starts evangelizing and Samaria receives the gospel. Then he's like, oh, unction. And the spirit leads him down towards Egypt and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch and he shares the gospel. And then that person's saved and he takes it on to Ethiopia. And then he's like, well, I guess I'm going to go to Caesarea, to a beach town, right? White sandy beach, Mediterranean Sea. And that's where he sets up shop. And it says that he preached the gospel everywhere he went. That's an evangelist. Not everybody is particularly gifted by the Lord to be that person who is bringing people to salvation. But we are all called to speak the gospel to our neighbors. The next one, number four, shepherds. The shepherds. Some of your translations might say pastors. This word is, got to put my fingers down here so I can keep an eye on it, poimain. The word here translated shepherd is poimain. This is literally a herdsman. It is different than the word that's typically translated for elder or overseer, which is presbyteros or episcopi. This is a person who is uniquely endowed by the Lord to come alongside people, 
share the right amount of truth, the right heart, the right words at the right time to heal, to bind up the the broken leg, to speak comfort, to protect. A shepherd throughout scripture was that person who would be warding off the wolves, would be looking for the bears, would be seeking out the thieves. The shepherd was the one that the sheep loved so much they would just follow them. There's a, there's a story that's told of a man in Israel was learning the difference between, like, of a shepherd. Like, what's the shepherd in Israel actually like? And the, the tour guide was saying, you know, the shepherd would always walk in front of the sheep. He would talk. The sheep would follow him. And then they drove around the corner, and here's this guy behind the sheep, kicking at the sheep, knocking at the sheep, like, let's move, sheep. And he's like, whoa, there's your shepherd, dude. Like, you're wrong. The guy stops the bus and gets out and goes and walks to him, talks with him for a minute and comes back and he goes, (laughs) that's the butcher. (laughs) The shepherd is the one that will lead the sheep, be in front of the sheep. The sheep love him and have this comfort with him that they just want to kind of stick along with him. Yesterday, I was mucking out our cow pen with Titus and Silas and I was waiting for Fiona to come up. And... As we're in the cow pen, the cows are right outside the door watching us, and they just start bellowing. And I looked at the boys, and I said, Fiona's on her way. And I looked around the corner, and sure enough, here comes Fiona. These cows are just at her. Fiona has cared for these cows, burger and meatloaf, so well that they see her come out the door, and they just cut loose. They love Fiona. She has tenderly treated them. I walk out the door and the cows look at me and they start rolling their horns around because I get in there and they poke me with the horn and I smack them and I push them out of the way. I'm like, no, I'm not your shepherd. Like I'm your, (laughs) I'm going to eat you. Like that's my goal. Um, But the shepherd is one that is gifted by God that we as people just go, man, this person's heart is so precious. They just love the church. They just want to help the church. They just want to strengthen the church. They, want to, they can use that word just so fittingly that it's like a balm on an open wound. Amanda and I, I think, most recently experienced a ministry within the church of God of a shepherd Um, counselor. This guy, we went up to Seattle. A lot of you know that. We went up to Seattle and we met with a a counselor, a marriage counselor. And this guy's ministry is based around like sitting down and talking with people and understanding who people are and how you're thinking and what your background is. And then saying, I think this is what you need to hear. And what he spoke to me was like, yeah, that's exactly what I need to hear. And what he said to my wife, I went, oh, dude, that's not what she needs to hear. And it was. It was exactly what she needed to hear. It was wonderful. It was a gifting of this guy from God to our family right then. And he's booked a lot. And I would encourage you, this is like the most, this is like a sweet opportunity for discipleship. You can call this ministry up and say, hey, my marriage is doing all right, but I want you to check in on it. Like, you're a trusted person who knows how to look into people's lives. Like, can you help us out? Can you just look into us? Maybe only for two days or three days, maybe not the whole week. Um, It's a blessing. 
But that is a gifting within the church. And I think there are some in this church, I believe there are some in this church who are getting stirred. Maybe they're going through, I'm not going to say Joel is, but I know he's going through a psychology class right now, who are like learning how people think and have a desire to go, this is how people think. This is how people work and, and are drawn to that and can rise up and be a sweet, particular blessing to the church of shepherding, of being that person that would speak truth very bluntly to one person and then sitting right next to that person, tell them a story because that's how they respond. Amanda pointed that out to me like on day two. She goes, do you realize like this guy will say something bluntly to her, but then with me, he'll like tell a story so that I have to work, the, work it out and get it my own way. Um, he was just, he was, it was awesome. The way that he would just, this is how you think, this is how you think. I'm gonna speak this way, I'm gonna speak this way. And it was just like balm on wounds. That is the idea of shepherding within the church. Now, this one can be translated pastors. And I struggled a lot over these qualifications because I, it's not particularly speaking to the office of an elder, but the office of an elder, Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter calls shepherds. Like that is something that is active and in place of our elders. Like there is a, a, a heart of shepherding. There is a need for shepherding. Paul, or <laughs> Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that you've, given, you've been given oversight of. And that is within that office. It should be there. Teaching, which is coming next, teachers. Teachers is a requirement of the office of elder, overseer, pastor, Shepherding is given there also as like, this is a pretty major thing of this office. But as we're going through this, my struggle in all of this was he's speaking about the church altogether. He's not going back to the apostles. He's not talking about those 12 apostles next, necessarily. He's not talking about each and every person. He's talking about a particular group of people gifted to go out. Here, I don't think he's talking so much specifically about the office as he is the person that's been gifted with that gift of shepherding. Within the home, shepherding takes place. Moms within our church typically are with their children all day, especially right now. There's no other functions to go to. Are your children able, is the heart of mom and dad right now in this crazy season, one that children just are like, I feel so comforted next to my parent, next to my mom, next to my dad. Is that, is that shepherding, that care, that tenderness, is it there? Is it taking place there? Is there someone in the church particularly gifted to pour out and to be that, like, come with me person, that shepherd. Well, we've got Ben, Nathan, and Seth, right? Those are things that we've recognized in them, and they've been called into that office. Are there 
others? Are there others that are going, man, I, I just want to come alongside this other young man or ladies, I just want to come alongside this young lady and, and just help walk with them through this and show them through this. It's a gifting. The last gifting here is teaching. And I am way out of time, almost. Okay, we're going to move here. Teaching, wow, I just looked at the time. Um, <laughs> I'm totally off track. Teaching, I'm going to flip the page here. This is specifically didasco, Diadasco. This is like the doctrinal breakdown of teaching within the church. This is the person who is taking the word of God and saying, this is doctrine. This is how doctrine plays out. This is how this plays into this. And this is how that takes into that. And that's where others go, I get the doctrine. I get it. I'm, I'm hearing the teaching. This is how I'm going to apply it to my family. This is how I'm going to women teach my children in school these truths. As you have Bible in your homeschool or you're, you're sitting down at dinner with the Bible open and you, you break down what is being taught as the doctrine, you're sharing what you've been learning. And that the one that is teaching is that one who's breaking down the doctrine. Is, um, this is where within the church, and I'm going to be really, really careful here, really specific, within the church, the office, the the teaching is really, really, really guarded by Paul. That's where Paul says, I don't suffer a woman in the church to teach this kind of teaching. And we can go, like we could spend a whole nother day there, but I can't, I can't today. Within the church, this, doc, this teaching ministry is really, really guarded. It's not just for men, though. It's for really specifically called Men And they're going to be held to a higher degree of scrutiny when I stand before God someday. I'm going to be held to a scrutiny that Silas right now isn't held to because I'm standing on this side. Like, that's the kind of idea. It's a really, really protected gifting. But within the church, there are teachers. It's not necessarily someone that's standing up here behind the podium week after week. It is... The people who go, you know what? I can communicate. I understand this, and I can share this with you. I can teach this to you. Within the church, our little families, and our one, two, three, four, five, six down on our core values board there is strengthening the family unit. The core value is saying of our church saying. We're a, we're a family of families, right? And within these families, there are little itty-bitty churches that go home together, and then they wake up together, and there's these roles that are taking place. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call out, men, you are the teacher, the doctrinal like authority of that home. How's your teaching? You will be held to a greater standard on what you're teaching within your home. I remember really vividly, and I can't, I can't spend a whole lot of time, but there was one day at the dinner table, I said a joke, and I went, oh, no, because I looked at my kids, and they were like, oh, I can joke that way now. 
and I just, and I've been suffering for it. Like that joking is like still coming out. And the one that hurts the worst is rather than slug bugs because Volkswagen Beetles aren't very popular, we started playing pinches for motorcycles. I taught this in my home. And so now I'm driving down the road and my kids are like, motorcycle. And they pinch that little fatty spot on the back of my arm with their strong little fingers and it hurts so bad. Like, how's the teaching within your home, man? (laughs) How are you doing? What are you teaching? Is it okay to teach funny little games? Um, Yeah, you might have to suffer some repercussions, but how's your teaching of the word of God? That's where I've got to move to. I don't have much time, so please hang on. (laughs) Please hang on. We're going to move forward here. So verse 12, these five Gifts of the, to the church from the Spirit of God are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Can I get an amen on that? That is the point of them. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The whole point of these word ministries is to strengthen and equip the church to do the work of the ministry. I hope and pray there's an evangelist out there that's just waiting to have like the hands of the leadership laid on them to go and evangelize so that the church can grow. I hope and pray there's more shepherds out there that may only be under 10 years old right now, but are learning what it means to shepherd a family well, and that can be part of the church's future ministry. I hope and pray that there's more teachers out there who go, you know what? I want to take on that responsibility of teaching within the church. I hope and pray that that's there. The work of the ministry is from the body of Christ. If you are a born again believer of Jesus, you have the biblical authority to take part in the ministry of the word within our culture, within our towns. You are heralds of the gospel. You are proclaimers of the salvation. You are equipped. There are within the church people with specific, specific, particular callings to these giftings as well. And those are who I hope are, are being called out, are being called up so that within the church, it's taking place. These ministries will not be burdensome. If you can't, if you are a person who just goes, I, I, I tremble in the knees, I, I can't really speak, maybe you're not an evangelist. (laughs) And that's okay for you to to recognize what you're not. But if you're someone who goes, I just love talking to people, well, maybe you're an evangelist. Maybe that's something that God has placed in you from before the foundation of the world. Verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We are told by Peter to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That word grow is a verb. It means do it. 
Last night, I measured our kids on our little height board, and I went, yep, you've grown, yep, you've grown, yep, you've grown. I've never looked at my kids and go, would you grow 10 more pounds so you can be out of the car seat? Like, I don't do that. Like, we don't do that. We don't look at our kids and go, would you just grow one more inch and you can ride the roller coaster? We don't say that to our kids. How often, though, parents, have you said in the last two weeks, would you just grow up? Please. I've said it. And then I go, wait a minute. Ah, is, that, is that the right heart? And I have to check myself. And I go, okay, is there a physical thing that we can do to help our bodies grow? Yes, we can feed good food to our kids, right? When we were in Ireland, there were these short um, Africans that came up in the church that we were visiting, and they're like, hey, meet my son. And I look, and here's like this seven-foot-tall guy. And I'm like, that's your son? And they're like, yeah. When we got to Ireland, we started eating a better diet, and our children grew. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, that's cool. You can do things to help your bodies grow. We can do things in our mind to help our minds be stronger, right? We can do root memorization. We can look um, and play Scrabble games to try to get our minds to engage. Uh, we can do things to make our minds grow. We can do things to grow spiritually. This is the one thing where I think we so often go, you know what? Um, I know I'm supposed to grow, but I'm not going to try to make myself taller this year, so I'm going to just sit back and let the Lord grow me. And if you sit back in a chair all day and go, you know what, I'm not going to work on my physical health, you will grow your table muscle. Has anybody ever heard of that table muscle? If you don't like do anything physically, you're just going to kind of start growing that lump around the table that you try to push into stuff. It doesn't, it's not the healthy way to go. If we just sit in church week after week and yeah, we read our Bible a little bit, like the growth spiritually won't be taking place. It is, in, it is necessary that we as Christians desire to grow. Think of the parables of uh, the uh, 14, Matthew 14. I read it this morning. The parable of 13. It's Matthew 13. The hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's the idea of life as Christians. Like we look at this thing called salvation and we go, I want that more than everything else. And I'm going to pursue this. Church, can we please, in 2021, to any degree that we can, go, I want to pursue God more this year than I did the year past. Can we, in, in any way that we physically, mentally can put it into our hearts, go, God, please help me to grow in you more this year than I did last year. Help me to be a little bit more Gracious, help me to be a little bit more sanctified. Help me to be a little bit more kind. Help me to grow. God, please help me, us, to grow. Going back to Ephesians, getting back out of Matthew here. Ephesians, that we might not be carried about by every wind of doctrine. I was going to go through a biblical worldview and contrast it with secular humanism, which is what we live in the amongst. Um, but I wanna ch I'm going to just challenge uh, fathers first. How's your family doing on a biblical worldview? 
on how you look at the world. And then I'm going to challenge each and every one of us. How are you doing with a biblical worldview? And what that is, a biblical worldview is comprised of what our basic views of God are, what our basic view of man is, truth, knowledge, or knowledge being specifically, how do we know what we know? Ethics, how do we determine what is right and wrong? There's lots of other areas that we can call or we can bring into a biblical worldview. But take those five. What does our family believe about God? Is God a personal God who created and rules and interacts with the world? Or is God just a force or energy? What do we believe about man? Is man seen as a special creation of God, made in the image of God, as the crowning glory of God, who fell under Adam's sin and needs redeemed? Or is man the end result of a random evolutionary process, therefore just a glorified multiplication of cells? If you hold, if you can understand and look at that, you can understand how secular humanists will say, well, if you're just a glorified multiplication of cells that has randomly evolved, then abortion is okay up until two years old. Because that's when a person becomes a person. That's what the culture is saying. They... The honest abortionists, that's where they put it. They go, it's until a person can think, communicate, and take care of themselves. We look at that and we go, oh my goodness, that's murder. But it's because from a biblical worldview, we go, no, man is created in the image of God. And we have completely diabolically different understandings. So how is your personal, your family's father's, biblical worldview of man. Truth, is truth relative or is it objective and absolute? Knowledge, is it the assumption that nature is closed and that knowledge is derived by the study of a closed system by reason and scientific method? Or did God create the world and everything in it and has put into it his general revelation and his special revelation of the word? I have talked to two men in the last year one just recently who was a pastor in a church and went, his basis for knowledge was on a closed loop system. And he went, if I can see it, therefore it must be true. And because it's true, therefore it works out and I can see it. A year ago, I had the same exact conversation with another man who left seminary because he was taking, he got off on his worldview and went, this is a closed loop system. God doesn't interject into this system. We look at it and we go, no, God interjects in this system. Therefore, the word of God is true because God said it. Well, that's just circular reasoning. Yes, it is. And they got angry, very angry at me when I went, but yours is a circular reasoning too. You say it's closed and that you can see it or observe it. Therefore, it must be true. And it's true because you can see it and observe it. And it's just a circular reasoning over here. We say God has endowed this creation with truth. He has given us his word. His word says it is true. It is a circular reasoning. But when you talk about ultimate truth, it will always be circular. I particularly address that one because in college, as you go off to college, you're going to be bombarded with this. 
You're going to be bombarded with the fact that there is no real truth. This is how our culture has gotten to the place that it is, is because, well, what's right for me is right for me, and what's right for you is right for you. You do you, boo. Like, that is secular humanism playing out. And that's how we get to these, all these other things. Lastly, is ethics cultural and negotiable, or is it transcend history? Timeless and absolute. Historians have a hard time saying that Nero was wrong in how he behaved because that was the ethic of the day. But from the very beginning, murder was seen as murder by God in Genesis, and man was given a wife, and the two became one flesh. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That is the ethic that Jesus went to when asked about marriage and divorce. He said he took it all the way back to the beginning. It's not changed. Ethics don't change. Our cultures look at them differently. If it is wrong to murder in Genesis chapter 3, 4, it's wrong to murder today. If it's wrong to murder at two years old, it's wrong to murder at six months in utero. That is how a worldview works out. Husbands and fathers, how's the ethic of your family? Grandparents, how's the ethic of your grandchildren? Your biblical worldview, sorry, how's the biblical worldview of your grandchildren? Is it being talked about? These are things, the Barna Group, um, the Nehemiah Institute, these are things that they have come and said, you know what? It doesn't just get infused by coming to church. Because in their research, they found recently that 70% of church-raised kids leave the faith by the end of college. So I try to map it out in my mind and just the amount of kids. We have like 35 kids-ish. That's 10 being Christian at the end of college within our church. Is that a good statistic or a bad statistic? That's terrible. That's a terrible statistic. As a church across America, we're losing the battle for truth. We're losing the battle of worldview. We have been destroyed by the bunker bombs of secular humanism. We cannot be tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather we speak the truth in love. Within the church, we've been given these great word gifts to be growing up with one another in. To speak the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If I come to my wife and I say, I love you, baby, that communicates that I love her. If I come to my wife with a cup of tea and the kids mysteriously are off playing in their bedroom and the living room's quiet and I hand her the cup of tea and I say, let's sit down for 10 minutes together and just talk. I love you, baby. Now she has fully received the love that I'm trying to communicate to her. 
because I spoke to her in a way that is immensely lovable to her. My, lo- my wife loves time together. That's like the most powerful way I can communicate love to her. If I come to her in the way that I love, that I like to be loved, it's going to be seen as like, oh my gosh, Jason, just leave me alone. Like, it's not loving. The way that I receive love is not the way that it's received love to her. If, <clears throat> if in the church we only look at ourselves and we say, this is the way that I would receive truth, and we say, I'm going to love you, so there, boom, I'm going to hit you with truth the way that I receive truth. It doesn't come across in love because love is on behalf of the recipient. The, the, one, uh, <laughs> the one who is receiving the love is the object of that love. That person is the one that when you're saying, I'm going to love this person, I need to think about how that person would receive the love. So when we speak the truth in love, how does that person receive love? How can I speak to that person in order for them to receive love? That is what this man did in this biblical counseling. He looked at Amanda and I and went, Amanda, you're going to receive love. You're going to receive my words this way. And Jason, you're going to receive my words this way. And he spoke to us differently. That is speaking the truth in love. That is coming, here's the truth. I love you enough that I'm going to say something, but I'm also going to love you enough that I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to think about how you can receive it the best. And it might still hurt, but at least then it is given in the most loving way. And I loved Ben's statement last week about what uh, Watchman Nee said. If we have the, uh, if we only try to do the right thing, then we are poor. We must do more than what is just right. I hope that was quoted right. That's how I wrote it down. We must try to do more than just what is right. We should live, as we coined with my kids yesterday, we should be trying to live as spirit, uh, spirit-gifted phenomenalness. Like, we should be trying to do spiritually phenomenal with how we interact with each other. Not just like, oh man, this was good enough. It was good enough just not to get in trouble or to cause a problem where I got the word out. But let's take it that extra step and go, we want to be led spiritually, spirit-gifted phenomenalness. Not just doing what is right, but going above and beyond that. So thinking of each other, how can I communicate love to this person? How can I communicate this to that person? How can I speak the truth to her or him in love? It's based more on how that person receives. I'm going to end, finish with this. Um, Seth brought up Jonah. Jonah chapter 2, right? Jonah gets vomited out of of the great fish, and the word of God came to Jonah a second time. If... Within your home, you go, man, my kids don't have a biblical worldview. If within your own life, you go, man, I don't know any, like, what's the difference between this view and that view and why? 
take the opportunity to go, the word of God can come to you a second time. It can come to you again today. It can come and the Lord can restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Maybe you're getting up there in age and you go, man, I've wasted so much time. Take the time now moving forward going, God, I want to grow. God, I want to grow in this verb that you've sent to me. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ that we might build one, one another up in love. To finish, if I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I am nothing but the clanking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, And if I have the faith to say to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I am nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I am bankrupt without love. Rather speak the truth than love. We are to grow up speaking. Sorry, I'm going to say that again. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Our God is so good. Our God is so good. He has gifted us in a victory parade so that our aim is to love one another. So that we can, with the way God has gifted each one of us, love one another to work together well. Not so that a calf is throwing out a hip or a finger pain is causing a headache. The body's working together as a well-functioning entity. Can we pray towards that? Can we pray that God would raise up apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers and shepherds? Can we pray that we would grow in grace and in knowledge? But more specifically, can we pray that we would be built up in love together? Let's pray. Father, I trust you. I trust you that you, um, that what we've talked about today is true. That love, being built up in love is is an end game. That's our, that's our goal. That's our motive. That's our, our pursuit. I pray, Father, that you would rise up within Pillar Bible Fellowship ones, men and women, young men, daughters, sons who are sent out from this church not as arrows but as atomic missiles that who would go out and take on the world, take on the prevailing winds of doctrine of this world, who would take on 
the hard sciences, that they would pursue biology and stand for biblical truth in biology or chemistry, who would seek out engineering and they would take the truths of God and they would pursue it. God, our bunker of Christian doctrine has been attacked so hard that our society is crumbling because of it. God, would you raise up more and more teachers who will teach your word? Would you raise up more and more shepherds who will gather together the flock and and love the flock? Would you raise up more and more evangelists who are particularly gifted and blessed to see other people come to know you, Jesus? Would you raise up prophets from among our sons and daughters? From us, God, would you gift, would you pour out your giftings? God, I pray you would bless Pillar Bible Fellowship. I thank you that you have blessed us with teachers who love your word, with those who will say, this is what the word of God says. This is how it applies. With those who have been sent here to bring this church, I thank you, God, for Pillar Bible Fellowship. Help us, Lord, to keep eternity in our crosshairs, the building up of the church in love as our goal, as we glorify you and seek you in this life together, as we desire to grow. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.